Well, I'm a little bit of a movie buff. And so, a good scene there in Dances with Wolves, Tatanka. Um, Believe it or not, this clip does illustrate the central point in the sermon today. Really. Words are merely signs. Signs that are used in conjunction to one another to communicate a reality. A reality that must be rooted in a common experience. So you see here Mr. Dunbar starts off, right? And he says, hello. And they look at each other like, what? Because they didn't know that common sign for a greeting. They had no idea. And then he's trying to explain to them a reality that's central to their life, to their culture. The buffalo. And so he tries to act it out. And of course the one says... He's lost his mind. Much the same as you might have thought about me when I said that this is the central point of the sermon today. But I haven't. Nor, did, nor had he. He was merely trying to convey a reality that was common to their experience. And once he did that, they could exchange their sign, their word for that reality. For him, it was buffalo. For the Indian, Tatanka, Right? And so what we come to find is that uh, both an experience of the reality and the words assigned to that reality are needed in order to communicate in a way that someone comes to have understanding. Another quick illustration just because it's, it's a good one. It was Donuts with Dad Day at uh, Northridge Elementary. And my youngest son, Noah... Terry's already laughing. She knows the story. My youngest son, Noah, was so excited. And we were, Jill and I were musing just at his excitement. And he he was like, so you're coming, Dad? You're coming? I said, yeah, I'm coming. He goes, oh, I'm so excited. I've been telling all my friends how flat you are, and now they can see for themselves. So you're looking at me because you don't know what flat means. That's a sign that my son uses to refer to a sign you're aware of that is fat. Yeah. I can't wait for my friend. I've told them all how fat you are. And now they're going to get to see for themselves. So we laughed hysterically. Told our friends so they could laugh too. And so here I come to this. Donuts with Dad Day, and Noah is a room worker. He's real social, so we'll go to a large deal, and he'll go, he'll be like, I'll be back, Mom and Dad. We're like, okay. He'll go work the room, say hi to all the teachers, all his friends. So we get there, same thing. He goes, and he brings this little girl back to me to introduce me to her, and he says, this is my dad. He's kind of (laughs) flat. And she looked at me just like you guys did. And then she ran away. (laughs) She was just thinking, I don't know that he's flat. He's more big-boned and husky, I think. (laughs) Which is the case for me. 
So one's experience of a reality in the words, verbal or otherwise, that express that reality are both necessary for understanding. This is the point as we look at the revival of God's people in Nehemiah 8. I would like to ask a question today. How did this revival of God's people come about which brought His people to this stage in our narrative? Which, by the way, is the climax of this revival. So how did it come about? We're going to have to kind of review a little bit, which is important because this is an important transition in this book. All right? So let's recall how it all started, right? It started with this godly man who was praying a theocentric prayer. Do you remember it? I beseech you, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God, I pray on behalf of the people with whom you have made a covenant. We have not been faithful, but you are always faithful. And so I pray according to the promise that you have made. Nehemiah prays. He prays for four months and it galvanizes with him a boldness. A boldness that moved him. It was a boldness rooted in the sovereign God of the universe who rules with power and whose promises are reality. And this moved him. And it moved him to want to become a part of the purposes of God, if you remember. And so, it moved him to action eventually. And he had a a time in his life where he had to step out in faith. And he had to risk everything to do it. Do you remember? He stepped out and came before the king and said, remember that city? You know, the one you decreed that nothing should be done on it anymore? I want to rebuild it. He risked his life and put himself on the line in order to align himself with the purposes of God. And watch what happens. The king granted these things to me, Nehemiah recalls, because the good hand of my God was upon me. Note the missional pattern here. Risking everything in faith. Nehemiah believed God and aligned his life with God's purposes. And he came to experience the living God in action. He came to experience the reality of a sovereign God who rules over all the universe. And so he continues to risk everything and live out of God's purpose in prayerful dependence and active faith. And he goes, sound like a missionary journey? For two months from Babylon to Jerusalem. And he arrives and he, he comes before this people who've tried and already failed to rebuild the walls. And he describes and identifies the bad situation they're in together. And he says, come, let us rebuild so that we may no longer be a disappointment. You might remember that reproach. It means a disappointment. And basically what he's saying is this. Let us rebuild so we can be the people that God intended us to be. God's people, a blessing to the world. Let us realign ourselves with the purposes of God and let's be about the mission of God. And then he testifies to what God has done already. Do you remember? He said, the hand of my God has been favorable to me. And so listen closely to the work he has done. He gives a testimony. 
And the people were unified in their hope of the power and the promise of God, even though they had not yet experienced it for themselves. They believed in the testimony of Nehemiah. And in that hope of that promise of God's power and provision, they were unified as a people. And they said, let us arise and build. Let us partake in this mission of God. And so they do. And the moment they do enters the enemy. Notice when the enemy entered. He didn't enter when they were in the pomp of luxury in Babylon. (laughs) The enemy didn't enter when they enjoyed the convenience, the comforts, all the amenities of living in a prosperous nation. No. The enemy entered when the people became unified in faith. The enemy entered on the hot, dirty battle lines of the ensuing kingdom of God. Do you see that? That's when the enemy comes in. So here they are, wanting to align with God. And here comes the enemy because they've engaged on the battle line of the kingdom of God. And so guess where they find themselves? Out there in faith, risking life and limb, weak and needy trying to align themselves with the purposes of God. And what comes to happen? They come to know the reality of God. They come to see His power in a way they hadn't seen before. And they didn't waver. In the face of all objections, in the face of all challenges, they didn't waver. They trusted and obeyed and put their hands to the good work of the Lord. And when they did, they became unified in their faith. And they were undistracted by the enemy. But you remember God was doing something bigger than building a wall, wasn't he? He was rebuilding his people. He was accomplishing his mission. He was setting his people up to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. God is building a community of those who are called by His name. And it's their faith in the promises that He's given that's been expressed by the carrying out of this mission that bound them together as one. And so what did God accomplish? Brings us to some text. Here we're at Nehemiah 6, 15, 16. It's where Todd left off. And we're going to get to see what God did. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul in 52 days when all the enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of the Lord. I just want to give you a timeline here, alright? Less than six months from the time Nehemiah stepped out in faith to come before the king and risk life and limb to align himself with the purposes of God, less than six months from that very time, two two months' journey away from that wall, that wall was completed. The work itself only took 52 days. Absolutely unprecedented. And the speed was so great that all their enemies lost confidence. It became Evident. It became revealed. The reality of what happened 
sunk in even to those who didn't know God, and that was this. The power of God through His people was accomplishing great things. It was undeniably the work of God. They got to see the reality of God. They got to experience it for themselves as they stepped out in faith to align themselves with His purpose. So God's people believed in the testimony of Nehemiah that God was doing a work and they joined in. And having committed themselves faithfully to this mission, they came to experience the living God for themselves. In less than seven weeks, through the leadership of Nehemiah, God had overcome internal despair, external opposition, and raised not just a physical wall, but also the self-respect of His people in the eyes of the surrounding nations. That's what God did. And so Nehemiah 6.17, because we come to find this work is not done. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. So there's this exchanging of letters. Do you see that? And if you remember, Tobiah was the official under Sanballat and Samaria. He was actually one of the enemies, right? And so there's an exchange of letters. Probably how they stayed so well informed of the progress of what was going on. And we come to find later in 18 that Tobiah, he probably once lived in Jerusalem. Uh, he and his sons married in a Jewish family. 6.18 says, For many in Judah were bound by oath to Tobiah, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehohonan, that's a hard one, had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakai. It was suggested in Nehemiah 3 that Meshulam was a firm supporter of Nehemiah's building of the wall, if you remember. He was a supporter. But the situation might not have been as straightforward as Nehemiah had thought, which we're going to see in the following verse. It says, moreover, they were speaking about Tobiah's good deeds in Nehemiah's presence and reported his words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten Nehemiah. Interesting. It seems there were people among them who were happy to see the walls rebuilt. They were happy to see the city reestablished. But you know what? This wall was more than the reestablishing of that city. Do you remember? This wall was the reestablishing of the people of God. And for Nehemiah, it was much more than that. It was them separating themselves from the rest of the world to be about the purposes of God, to be and become the people of God. That's what the wall was about. But you see, there were those in their midst that weren't that interested in that. They were excited about the wall. They were excited about the city. But they weren't much interested in the movement of God. They weren't much interested in aligning themselves with the purposes of God. They just wanted to be there along with them, you know? Just to be there. Not to be actively engaged. Not to uh, turn their lives over to God's mission and to align themselves in faith. But just to kind of hang around and be a part of the movement of God and His people. Because that's beneficial. And for these, they probably wanted to continue to have trade and benefit from, from what God had done there. But they were personally very disattached from that. 
They didn't want the revival that comes within your heart. They weren't willing to relinquish their will to God, only to hang around them and enjoy those benefits. I find this instructive and, and challenging to me because I know that myself and probably most all of us are guilty of this at one time or another. We want to be included in the church. We want to be along here. We love these relationships. We love coming here. But we don't really want the calling that God's given us. That calling is not easy. It's a hard one. You know, and I want to enjoy the fellowship I want to enjoy all the things that come with that. But the mission that comes before that in Acts, I don't know about that one. That makes me feel real uncomfortable. I want to be a part of God's people. I want to be there in that city and and around this work that He's doing. But if you're talking about revival in my heart and stepping out in faith, stepping out where my life is at risk to align myself with the purposes of God, don't know if I'm there. That's kind of scary. And so here they are. Much like a church, bricks and mortar, or really any aspect, aspect of an institution, whether it be programs or whatever it is, it's really just a framework because the substance depends on the attitudes and activities of the people concerned. And so this is the case here. And so there still stands to be a threat. There's a revival that needs to happen in the hearts of God's people. A conversion to walking away from my will, my comfort, my convenience, all the things that I get from the world, and stepping out on the dirty, dark battle lines of the mission of God. Because it's there that I'll experience the reality of the power and the purpose and the promises of that God. It's there that I don't merely believe on the testimony of others, but come to know the living God in the flesh, as it were, manifest powerfully, really. It's there that the reality of God is established. And we come to know Him as He is. And I have to ask myself questions. They're diagnostic questions we all kind of have to ask ourselves, as uncomfortable as it makes us. Which one are we serving? Which one are you serving now? Does the mission of God consume your time, your finances, and your thoughts? Is that where your heart is? Is that where it's aligned? Do you seek to lose your life in this world that you might gain it in a world to come? Really think about that, okay? That's kind of a big idea. That all your hopes and aspirations are tethered to the other side of the grave. Is that where you are in your heart? I was listening to Christian radio, something I do rarely, and this will be the reason why. They had an author on there, and she had written a book on time management. And this is what she said. 
Say no most of the time to others in order to manage your time well so you can focus on the things that really matter to you in your life, your family, your health, your career, your interests. And they loved it. Boy, the collars were blowing it up. Oh, that's so right. That's right. They were unified. No longer are they going to sacrifice their lives for the sake of others. They're going to live for themselves in Jesus' name. Doesn't sound like Jesus to me. And here's the unfortunate thing. When we live for ourselves and we live for our own lives and we forsake God's mission, we also get left out in experiencing the power of His presence and the reality of His life as He powerfully works His purposes for for redemption. We forego that and get lost in ourselves. I want to remind us of the one we follow. This mission that we've been called to, it's going to cost your life. Not a little, not a part. It's going to cost all of it. That's what he's called you to. Every bit of it. Think about these words for a minute. They're tough ones too. If you seek to gain your life you'll lose it. But if you seek to lose your life for my sake, you will surely gain it. Who's my? Jesus. Remember? The one who didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve. The one who came to seek and save the lost. The one who came to give his life for the good of others. The one who considered others to be more important to himself. It hurts my heart to hear Christian radio (laughs) say the exact opposite of the call that we've been given by God. And so I'd say, welcome to Babylon. You're living in it. I'm living in it. This is Babylon. Matter of fact, this is far greater than Babylon ever thought about being. Here we are, the people of God. So the narrative here points forward to what follows, giving attention from now on to the people of Jerusalem and their spiritual warfare. The walls have been built. Chapter 7, and I'm just going to summarize it because I want to move to chapter 8. There is a need for a thriving population. So what Nehemiah does is, He assigns some people to set up guard and take charge of the city. And he works on populating the city because this was necessary for the city to to remain strong and to make people not want to come and invade it, okay? But instead of populating the city with whoever because that would accomplish that, Nehemiah had something else in mind. This was the city of God. And so he had found some genealogies from back when his people were displaced under Nebuchadnezzar and had returned under Zerubbabel. And he found those genealogies and he took a census. 
and gathered the people who had returned that are God's people. And they are the ones who he assigned to inhabit the city. Good move. Because you see, something bigger here is there than just that the city would stand. It's that it's God's city and it's God's people and God has a mission and that's what Nehemiah was about. And so they repopulate the city. And the sons of Israel were in their cities. And then we see at the very end of this chapter, the faith of the people is tangibly expressed, both in their efforts, because they were all, every one of them, leaders, everybody, including Nehemiah, putting their hand to the work of the, of the Lord, right? But then you also come to find that they also give monetarily to that work of the Lord. But it's both of them. Because it was in their efforts, in the laboring for that work, that they came to be unified as a people. That's where they came to be galvanized as the people of God because that's where they experienced the power and presence of God in all reality. But they all gave as well. In a monetary culture, I think this is probably instructive for us. I pay for people to do the things that I don't want to do. I pay for people to do the things that I don't feel like doing. The work of God is not one of these things. The work of God is something He's given each one of us to do because it's there that we experience His power and His presence. And so with God, He asks for all of it. You know, time is the most precious commodity in our, in our culture. I'd probably be will, more willing to put forth money than I would time. That's why I pay people to do things I don't have time for. But God asks for it all. He asks for your time. He asks for your commitment. He asks for your money, but he asks for it in faith because you believe in his power and his promises. You believe that when God speaks, it's not a sign about a thing. God speaks forth reality. What he says is true. It's as real as anything there is. And so here we come to chapter 8, which focuses on covenant renewal for the people of God. You see what prepared them? What prepared them was experiencing the reality of God as they set their hand to accomplishing the mission of God. That's what prepared them for what we come to in 8, which is the covenant renewal. Now, first I want to note that I'm only doing half of this chapter today, so everybody can breathe their sigh of relief. <sighs> now, if you laughed and breathed your sigh of relief, such as I did, you'll soon feel bad. And being so relieved that I said that. <laughs> so God's word has a way of making me laugh sometimes. Structurally, there's some repetitions here in chapter 8 that emphasize the theme of this chapter. Each one begins with a voluntary gathering of God's people for the purpose of hearing God's words explained. That's how they all begin. And each of them ends with joy that's connected to their obedience, to their understanding of God's words. So they come together to hear God's words be explained and then they go away with joy because they've come to understand and obey what the great God has said. Alright? So reading with explanation leads to understanding and this is a source of joy. Understanding should issue forth in obedience and this in turn will end in joy. That's the formula, generally. So here we go, Nehemiah 8, 1-3. 
And all the people, by the way, 42,000 of them, just so you got that picture in your head, gathered as one man at the square which is in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from here at the same place from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Wow. I don't know if you caught that. When was the last time we gathered for seven hours to listen to Leviticus and Deuteronomy? (laughs) Woo! God must have been doing a work because normal human beings don't do that. Well, this chapter begins with a big picture scene, and then... The next part of it is going to start to take that apart and give you details within that. But I think the big picture scene is pretty instructive for us. Remember what preceded all who could understand, gathering as one to attentively listen to the book of the law for seven hours? It was the unity of people galvanizing the mission of God where they came to know that reality. You see, when they understood the reality, just as the Indians understood the reality of the buffalo, so the words of God took on a new meaning. These were the very words of God, the all-powerful God that did a work no one could have done in 52 days. Their experience of that reality informed their understanding of those words that that God has had, had given. I used to be under a mentor named Tom Nelson, and he used to rail against people in the sermon regularly who would come on Sunday and, and he, would do, he would call it this. They would sit and they would soak and they would sour. That's what he would say. They would sit, soak, and sour. Come and feed on that like a hydrant and then go across the great eraser that's right over the door and go on about their week until they come the next week. He firmly believed that the understanding of God's Word could never be divorced from full involvement in the mission of God. Those two he saw as two sides of the same coin. Can't have one without the other. To validate his position, which at various times I might have questioned, particularly when I wasn't aligning myself with the mission of God, Mark Bailey, and this was another person, unaffiliated with Denton Bible, unaffiliated with Tom Nelson, was asking He's a good friend of, of Mark Bailey. He's the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. He asked him, Mark, who are your best graduates? Consistently, who are the best graduates that come through here? You wouldn't believe what he said. I didn't believe what he said. Those who've been through Tom Nelson's discipleship program are by far and away the best graduates that we ever have. And he was astounded too. He said, really? Why do you think that? And he said, because those that went through Tom Nelson's discipleship program were required to be heavily involved in the ministry of God. That's why. And so it seems to validate the point. Do you remember Jesus' disciples? A couple other examples. He sends them out to go do his mission. Do you remember the way they are when they come back? They don't come back like, yeah, we got this. We're good. Yeah, we're ready to go out again. No, they come back and, boy, they got questions. A barrage of them. And you know what? 
they're ready to listen. You with me? Do you see the attitude of their heart? They want to hear a word from their Lord because they've been out doing that work and they need it. They're in need. It's an educational principle. Interest always precedes real learning. Interest is gained out on the front lines of mission where God is revealing himself, where his arm is bared, is bore, and his power is seen and unmistakable. That's where interest is created. You know that in China and Africa and many other countries where, the, uh, where God's word is progressing in, in amazing ways, they'll meet and, and listen to teaching for hours on end. And they do it not out of obligation, almost out of necessity. We have to because we're needy. You know why? Because we've lost family. We've lost everything to follow this Jesus. And we need to hear a word from Him. And the Lord adds to their numbers daily. There are many things we could say about this. But I want to point out a couple of things that we will need to contend with. First is this. We currently live in the fourth least evangelized country in the world right now. The fourth least evangelized country in the world we live in. And I have to face this question myself. What are my evangelistic efforts like? How have I aligned myself with the mission of God? Here's the second one, and I've said it already, but we live in modern-day Babylon. And the question we have to ask is this. Are we willing to separate ourselves from the comfort, the convenience, and the relative safety that this context gives us in order to go out on the front lines of mission, sacrificially taking a risk to be fully engaged in the work of God, as Nehemiah was? Well, if we are, we too might come to be a people of revival. And my guess is, if you're anything like me, you have need of becoming a people of revival. Well, Nehemiah 8, 4, 8, he goes on to tell more details in this. He says this, Ezra the scribe stood at the wooden podium which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood leaders to the right and the left. I don't list them all for your sake and mine. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered him, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, many others explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. My addition, seven hours. Sometimes when they're giving these kind of specifics, it's better just to imagine this scene. So I want you to use your imaginations right now, and I want you to imagine it with me, okay? There it is. There's the wall. The wall that we've worked together on as a family for 52 days in sweat and tears, in fear and in confidence that God was doing something great. There we stand before it now. 42,000 of us as one. God's people in God's city. 
And it's a momentous occasion. We make a podium and we set it up and we raise it up above everybody else so we can all see it. And there's Ezra behind the podium. And sitting on that podium of elevated above all of us, there's a scroll. The very words of that God that just performed this great, amazing act that we were a part of. The words that He gave to us, there they sit. You gaze at it expectantly, waiting to hear a word from the Lord, a word you need. And Ezra takes the scroll and unrolls it. And 42,000 people instinctively stand in reverential awe to hear the word of the Lord. Can you hear it? It's like an army arraying for battle. 42,000 people jump to their feet to prepare themselves to hear the words of that great God that just accomplished this work. Do you see their hearts? And then you know what they do? In the same array, like an army of God's people, they fall to their knees. And it's awkward. I want you to see it. And they put their face prostrate on the ground. And they worship the God. The great God who has done great things in their midst. That's kind of humbling, isn't it? Makes you feel a little awkward, doesn't it? Because that was their hearts before the great God who had accomplished that work. Revival didn't start when they opened that word. Revival started when they aligned themselves with the purposes of God and came to experience that God. Then those words took on new meaning. They raised their hands in expression of need. They fell on their faces in humble adoration of that God who is among them. Do you see them? God worshipers. 42,000 of them. You see their body language? And then for seven hours, they stay in their places so they can learn what the words this God has said to them are about. And they had teachers coming along them and teaching them. And they were gaining understanding. And then do you know what they did? It's the next thing that you do. They wept. They wept bitterly. They wept bitterly because they realized this great God who is worthy of all glory, honor, power, and praise, worthy of their whole lives, they had forsaken. And it broke their heart because that God was worthy of so much more. I don't know if you realize the scene in heaven we're given at the Bema seat when Christ judges our deeds. But our deeds are judged and those that were about us are burned away. And what's left are the deeds that were accomplished for Him. And they're made into a crown. And you know what the people of God do? They don't put it on their heads. They throw it at the feet of the one in whom is worthy of their lives the same scene. God's people throwing their lives before the one to whom 
is worthy of their lives. This is the revival of God's people. I have a couple short stories and I'll end. The first story is this. I've had a relationship in my life with a gentleman who's been through a hard time. And I'm one that can relate to a hard time. I've been through a hard time in my life. And he found me to be one that was sympathetic. And so he came and entrusted himself to me, and, and God was beating him up. He was coming after him. You ever had God coming after you? Boy, it's scary. <laughs> and God was coming after him. And so I'd pursue him, and he'd run, and then he'd come back and cross us, and he'd weep, and I'd try to encourage him and build him up. And this went on for about a month and a half, and then I didn't hear from him a while was praying, you know, God, do a work in his life. Reveal yourself to him. And then he calls. He calls before this week began on Sunday night after I'd been in bed for quite some time because I had a big week this week. And I looked and I went, got to get up. And I listened to him for an hour. And he wept. And I didn't know what to say. He was, the crisis had come to a head. And I remember praying, Lord, give me the words. I don't know what to say. And I tell you, if I had drawn that scenario out a million times, <laughs> I never would have prescribed these words. I rebuked him. I said, you know what? You're trying to live in two different worlds. And the Lord, the great God of heaven, has determined to love you, and he's coming after you. People who he'd come after before, they've referred to him as the hound of heaven. And he ain't never going to let go. You're going to have to relinquish your will to him. Only option you've got. And it was crazy. He was encouraged by that. <laughs> and so he was encouraged and I let him go and we're going to meet the next day. So we meet the next day. And he comes in and he had met with some other brother unexpectedly and this brother had listened to him and and he told him about his story and the Lord had given this brother some wisdom and he said you know it seems that you really you really don't think you're worth anything do you and he realized and he said no I think you're right I don't think I'm worth anything and he goes well I want to tell you something God the Father thought there was enough value in you and that you were worth enough that he sent his son to die for you. And he's retelling me the story. And he said, for the first time I realized God died for me. He died for me. It was the first time I ever saw a smile on that guy's face in a month and a half. So I encouraged him and we rejoiced together because we had gotten to see the reality of God manifest in power in this man's life. And we rejoiced. I got a text later on that confirmed my suspicions. The text said this. 
thanks for your help lately. I love you, dude. For real. What I realize is this. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And this person is now experiencing the love of God. And that fruit is being born in his life. I got to see the hand of God in action. I got to experience the reality of God. And when I did, I came to want to hear those words all the more. But when I did hear those words all the more, it revealed other things in me. See, there's this little neighborhood boy that came to my house one Friday when I was tired. And he was playing with my son, and I looked at him and introduced him, and he went on, and my wife told me, yeah, they'd invited Owen into their home. But Luke didn't let him go into their home. And I said, good, and I turned to Owen, and I said, you know, you don't go into people's home that I don't know. He said, yeah, I know. I said, I've got to know him really well which is my way of saying you don't ever go into their home because I've been watching them. They look too familiar to me. They look like people I grew up with. And Owen said, (laughs) okay, (laughs) I got an idea. How about we have them over and you get to know them, Dad? His heart was in the right place. Mine wasn't. Mine wasn't. And then I sat out there this past Friday, and I was barbecuing and had some friends come over. And that little boy comes up. I watch him and his parents down the street. I know where they're at. It takes one to know them, and I can see them all the way down the street. I know where they're at. And their boy comes up and goes, Can I play with Owen? And I regretfully said, No, I got, we got company over right now. You know, maybe another time. And I watched him go next door. And I watched those people. And they went inside their house and literally closed the door on that little boy's face. And here he goes, down the street. And I felt myself despising those parents for setting him up for such rejection, a rejection I was a part of. And then later on that night, we were talking and sharing our pasts and our histories, and I was sharing some of mine and things that would give people pause if they knew about me, that they didn't know about me. And I was reminded again, I'm the sick and despised of the world. And here am I, looking down on the ones that I once was. And the reality that my new brother in Christ revealed to me came very true. And it's that Christ died for them just like he died for me. And I wept bitterly. Doug McAlpine came in and caught me weeping bitterly. I got a feeling that uh, it's an experience all too common to him because he wasn't surprised. So I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to leave you where Nehemiah wants to leave them in 8, 9 through 12. They were all weeping. Nehemiah said, no, this, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not weep, but rejoice. This day is holy to the Lord. 
And he said, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So what he's saying is this. You ready? This is a holy day according to the law. It coincided with the, the Feast of Trumpets, and it coincided with the proclamation of the law in a covenant renewal ceremony. It was a holy day to the Lord, and they were to rejoice. Their response was appropriate to weep because of their failure and the worthiness of God. That was appropriate, but here's the thing. On covenant renewal ceremony, they're recalling the law of God, and the way they're supposed to take it is a memorial of God's grace towards His people in historical acts of redemption. Did you hear that? A memorial of God's grace in historical acts of redemption. And they were to have joy because you know how God's acts were characterized with His people throughout redemptive history? In grace. In forgiveness. In taking our failures and our shortcomings, coming before Him, and Him forgiving, and Him restoring us to Himself. Covenant renewal. And so He said, do not weep, but rejoice And the Levites were teaching them. And they came to understand the grace of the Lord in their lives and their place in redemptive history. And that God would be faithful, even in my disobedience, even in your disobedience, to chasten and discipline us and realign us to His purposes. You see, His purposes don't fall squarely on our shoulders. He takes responsibility Himself. Are you feeling mangled? Realign your will the purposes of God and rejoice in his grace and they went out and they had a feast you know what people have been doing for two millennia after they take this memorial of the grace of God in in the most unique redemptive act in 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 history the sacrifice of Jesus Christ you know what they do they go have a love feast they go and commune and rejoice in the grace that is there in the covenant of the Lord with his people And so I encourage you now, go and rejoice. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Rejoice in the grace of the Lord. Realign yourselves with the mission and the purposes of God. The joy of the Lord is your strength.